0: Welcome to the Talking Leaves podcast. I'm your host, Miss Kyra, and we are returning today for episode two of our miniseries about Homer's The Odyssey. In this episode, we will take a look at Odysseus and his transition from Prince of Ithaca to King of Ithaca and what all this entailed. Long live the King. And the King of Ithaca did live a long time. Actually, a really long time given the lifespan expected in 1100 BCE. And so long, in fact, he decided to retire. I'm talking about Odysseus's father, Laertes, who decided to hand over the throne, crown, riches, and responsibilities of kingship to his son. So, and I'm not kidding here, he could become a shepherd. Now, before we think this is really amazing or really stupid, He had an heir, Odysseus, who he could entrust with these responsibilities. So really, it does sound enjoyable to hang up all of the stress and worries and just become an ordinary person on a beautiful island that your family happens to own. At the time, Odysseus was a full-grown man, likely, scholars suggest, in his late 20s to early 30s, and he was ready to take up being king. As king, though, this meant a new role that came with certain expectations— the most important of which, an heir for himself. Of course, this meant he needed a wife. Odysseus took up the responsibility of wife hunting with a plume. Means with some vigor, with some excitement, with some gusto. Despite how we see it today, at this time period, men actually did the spouse hunting. They needed to find a viable, a potential and beneficial mother for his future children. He was not trying to stay single. He needed an heir and a wife to solidify his role as king. And so he set out to find a wife. When wife hunting, it was not a romantic journey. He was not looking for a woman who he could make heart eyes at. He wasn't looking for the most beautiful woman. Instead, he needed a wife who could bring him economic or money and political or power gain. If she happened to be beautiful, yay! If she happened to be nice or whatever they wanted in a woman, then double yay! Getting along, liking each other, being friends, loving one another, that did not matter. That was secondary, if not tertiary, or whatever the fourth airy is. Marriage instead was an alliance, a contract of sorts. By marrying, they would create a bond between Odysseus's people, land, allies, and this woman's family and friends and allies. In addition to the political and economic gain, there were expectations for this woman upon that marriage. A woman's main role, what we do know of it, was to get married, to produce heroes, heirs, and general offspring, and to be loyal. Underline that word in your brain a few times. Particularly for Odysseus's wife, who would be a queen and need to produce an heir to the throne, she needs to be in all minds and all hearts and in all manners loyal to her husband, the king. So after scoping out the possibilities, Odysseus marries Penelope from Sparta. It isn't totally clear what all Penelope brings to the table, but in addition to those alliances, that political and economic gain that is automatically assumed, she was by all accounts incredibly beautiful, which again is just a bonus, woman. And within the first year of Odysseus being king, Odysseus married her. Within that same first year of kinghood, of marriage, Penelope and Odysseus have an heir, a baby boy named Telemachus. Odysseus' primary job as king, ensuring that the kingship will continue, is done, quickly and with the utmost success. As father, his role would be to train his son in all ways of being a man. Strong, brave, intelligent, clever, and a leader, of course. The woman's role, Penelope's role, would be to be loyal, never forget that, and to be a great hostess to honor and to serve any guests who would come to see Odysseus, or who would happen upon Ithaca. However, as we know, also within that first year of marriage, first year of kinghood, first year of fatherhood, Odysseus is called to war. He must answer Agamemnon's call to bring all able-bodied men, all the men from his island of Ithaca who could hold a weapon, to sail to Troy and get revenge and to get Helen back. And, ten years later, the war is finally won, largely due to Odysseus, as we know. When word, and actually really fast word, quite a genius communication system. Remember, they didn't have phones or Wi-Fi or even Morse code or radios. Instead, they had smoke signals. Stick around for the bonus story to hear all about this. When word returns that the Achaeans, the Greeks, are all returning home, Penelope and all of the wives of Ithaca, whose husbands all went to war, Telemachus and all of the sons, whose fathers all went to war, they're all ready and waiting, and waiting, and waiting. Year after year, times ten, the men do not return. There is no war, and all this time Penelope must wait for her husband, not just wait, but actively and constantly, like every minute of every day, see to the needs of her people, of her guests. She is queen, while also making it very clear that although she is seeing to the needs of her people, she is still 100 one hundred and a thousand percent faithful and loyal to Odysseus. There cannot be looks, there cannot be flirtations, no hugs, no smiles, nothing. The reason, any hint or rumor or thought running around that she is interested or seeing someone else would bring Telemachus' existence into question. If she isn't loyal to Odysseus now, maybe she never was. Maybe Telemachus isn't legitimately Odysseus' son. And this would bring her whole role into question. It would also bring upheaval and uncertainty to the Ithacan kingdom. Relatives could put their sons up for the position and job of king. A civil war could erupt. As such, Penelope, year after year, maintained the image and the reality of the perfect wife, queen, hostess, and to the best of her ability mother, Despite all this, as we know too well, growing up without a parent, in this case a father, is hard. And Telemachus had no one, no adult male figure, to really teach him how to be a man, how to be king. No son on the island of Ithaca had a father to teach him. So, they grew up to be, as Athena the grey-eyed goddess would later call them, a wolf pack of suitors. Uncivilized, undisciplined, disrespectful, and uncourageous men. As an aside, I do wonder why Laertes, remember Odysseus' father, didn't come home to the palace and help raise Telemachus. Maybe I don't know enough about it, but he remained a shepherd on that very island. And yet, Telemachus grows up without a male figure. Maybe that's too easy. Who knows? Nonetheless, we do know that at the start of the story, Penelope and Telemachus are suffering. They miss Odysseus. And Odysseus, we soon learn, is suffering too. 10 years plus 10 years more of being away from home. We've come to the end of our episode. Next time, we'll take a look at book one of The Odyssey, which starts with The Invocation. In other words, we begin with the storyteller, the narrator, inviting the muse, the nine goddesses of poetic inspiration, the nine goddesses of story and myth to fill him with the power to tell Odysseus's story. From there, we see the Olympian gods and goddesses, minus Poseidon, discuss Odysseus's fate and what they plan to do about his return home. I do have another bonus story for you about that genius communication method to notify the Grecian women and families of their men's return from Troy, so stick around for that. So, a little bit of backstory to this bonus story. Remember Agamemnon, the leader of the other kings of Greece, of the Achaeans? He called them all to war because his brother, Menelaus' wife, Helen, was kidnapped by Paris of Troy. Well, Agamemnon took all of these men and headed towards Troy. And along the way, they stopped at a few islands to stock up on goods. It was a journey that would take a couple of weeks. Agamemnon angered the goddess Artemis. Now, one thing about Artemis is that she's actually quite easy to offend. She's pretty prideful. And Agamemnon made a joke when hunting that he was a better marksman than she was. Artemis is literally the goddess of the hunt, so for a mortal man to say that he was better than she was was a huge mistake. As the myth goes, Artemis stopped the wind. They couldn't sail on. No wind, no breeze. To push them forward. So hundreds and hundreds of Greek ships were stalled. They couldn't go any further towards Troy. And so Agamemnon needed to make amends. He needed to please the goddess. What he needed to do was make a sacrifice. He needed to sacrifice something that he loved to Artemis. So a message was sent to his wife and his daughter to join him on the island. He said his daughter, Iphigenia, is going to marry his best soldier, Achilles. Wife, Clytemnestra, and daughter, Iphigenia, head towards the island. And when she arrives, Iphigenia is in her best wear. She was ready to be married to Achilles. And when she shows up, she sees Achilles, and she turns towards him. And he says, what are you doing here? That's the first sign that something here is not right. Achilles has no idea why Iphigenia is there. The second sign that something's wrong is when Iphigenia and Clytemnestra, his wife, go to find him and ask, why does Achilles seem confused by this? What's really going on? It turns out Iphigenia was never going to be married at all. Instead, Agamemnon needed to literally sacrifice her to appease the goddess Artemis. I'll spare you the gory details, but Iphigenia is sacrificed and Clytemnestra Agamemnon's wife, and Iphigenia's mother, never forgets. She returns home without her daughter. Agamemnon sails on to war, heading to Troy, which will last ten years. And Clytemnestra, she remembers. And she sets up a system with the other islands between Greece and Troy that when the Grecian soldiers start to sail home, when they leave Troy victorious, each island will send a signal to the next. They will light a fire on top of a hill and then the next island will light at fire, and then the next, and then the next, and then the next. And then ultimately, Clytemnestra would be notified that her husband, Agamemnon, was returning home. And when he returned, she would have her vengeance. So you can read about this yourself, but ultimately what happened was Clytemnestra and her boyfriend decided to kill Agamemnon. She waited until he got home, he had a feast, and then he was relaxing in a bath, and she killed him. That's not the end of the story, really. In book one of the Odyssey, Zeus talking to the other gods makes a reference to Agathos, who is Clytemnestra's boyfriend, and how he was killed for doing something that the gods told him not to do. He had an affair with Clytemnestra, Well, the gods told him not to, because if he did that, then he would be killed by Agamemnon's son. Not heeding the warning, he still had an affair with Clytemnestra, and then he ends up being killed in return for killing and helping to kill Agamemnon by Agamemnon's son. It's a whole vicious cycle here. So clearly the message is don't sacrifice people, or maybe overall, even before that, don't anger the gods. This will become really relevant in the Odyssey itself. Special thanks to these sources for information. Homer's The Odyssey, The Odyssey The Podcast, Britannica, the show Myths and Monsters, and ThoughtCo.